Chapter 3 of The Story of the World, A Simple History for Boys and Girls. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Christine Rucker. The Story of the World, A Simple History for Boys and Girls by Elizabeth O'Neill. Chapter 3. The Greeks. Gradually, the interest of early history moves from Western Asia and Northern Africa, where the two great early civilizations grew up, into Eastern Europe, and we begin to read about people who seem much more like ourselves. This is partly because they belong to the great race of which the English are one branch, viz. the Aryan race, which rolled in over Europe and almost swamped the earlier peoples already on the land. The Aryan race invaded the north of India, too, and became the chief people there, as we know from the language still spoken in the north of India. It sounds very different from our own language, but it is quite plainly derived, like it, from the speech used by all the Aryan race before it was dispersed all over the world. Another great branch of the Aryan race was the Persian people who swooped down upon the lands around the Tigris, the twin river to the Euphrates, and founded a great kingdom there, and then gradually conquered the whole of Western Asia and Egypt. The Persians, however, did not bring new ways into the lands they seized, but were content to learn from the people they conquered. So people went on building and teaching and doing most things in much the same way as they had done before the Persians came. But in the east of Europe, there rose up a great people belonging to the Aryan race who developed a very wonderful civilization of their own. These were the Greeks, or the Hellenes, as they were called at that time. While the Jews had been wandering from Mesopotamia into the Promised Land, these people had been pouring from the north into that land which we now call the Balkan Peninsula and into the islands round about it. The Greek were very wonderful people, clever and beautiful, full of curiosity about men and things. When we first hear about them, they were already quite civilized. They lived in towns and built beautiful houses, and very early, too, they loved and made poetry. The first great poetry that the Greeks made was said to be written by a blind poet called Homer, but scholars now think that the Homeric poems were written by many men and handed down from one generation to another. They tell of the early days of Greece, and with some history is mixed much that is legend or mere story. These stories are interesting in themselves and because they show us what the early Greeks thought was great and good. But the stories of Ulysses, of Jason and the Golden Fleece, of Fair Helen and the Great Wooden Horse in which the Greek soldiers hid themselves and so got within the walls of Troy, should be read merely as stories. Later the Greeks wrote plays and poems as great as any which have ever been written. Indeed, it is through Greece that the other countries of Europe have learned many of the best things they know. The climate of Greece was so soft and mild, and the country so beautiful, that the people were able to live very much out of doors. They were very healthy and happy, and they loved beautiful things. The Greeks tried to bring up all their children to be strong and beautiful, and most of them were so. 
Being used to seeing only beautiful people, their artists and sculptors painted and modeled very fine figures, and some of the statues carved by these old Greek artists remain today among the world's greatest treasures. The Greeks were very proud of their country and their people. To them, the rest of the world were barbarians or uncivilized. Their patriotism was fired by the religious festivals in which all the Greeks united to do honor to their gods. At first, each Greek clan or tribe worshipped together. Each kindled and kept alight a sacred fire in honor of the gods. Never must the fire be allowed to go out under peril of great disaster through the anger of the gods. No barbarian stranger might bring fuel to the fire. The care of it was a sacred trust. As time went on, some shrines became more famous than others, and to the great temples their Greeks from all parts of Greece would go in great numbers. At Delos there was a great shrine, and a still more famous one at Olympia, a beautiful plain in southwestern Greece, surrounded by mountains and forming a kind of natural theater. Here, every fourth year, the Olympic Games were held in honor of Zeus, the greatest of the gods honored by the Greeks. At the Olympic Games, the best runners from all parts of Greece ran races. Rich men brought their chariots and competed in racing too. Poets brought their offerings and hymns written and sung in honor of the gods. The victors of each contest, those whom the judge thought the best, were crowned before all the people with wreaths of wild olive, while the name of their fathers and the districts from which they came were cried aloud so that the people might do them honor. Yet though the Greeks could thus unite for worship and patriotism, they were not all joined together in one kingdom like the English or the French today. Each town with the country round it had at first its own government, this was chiefly because the land was broken up by deep bays on the coast and by mountain ranges inland, and it was difficult for the people in one part of the country to travel to another part. So there were many states such as Corinth, Delos, and Thebes, and more famous still than these, Sparta and Athens. For a time after the Greek people had settled down, each state had its king. The first king would probably be the bravest soldier who had led the people to victory in war, but when he died, his son would become king, and then his grandson, and in time some of the kings were not brave men at all, and nearly everywhere in Greece the people said they would not have kings any longer, but chose several of the greatest men in the land to rule them instead. Government by a few great men was called by the Greeks an aristocracy. Generally, in time, the states grew tired of the aristocracies, too, if they became proud and selfish, and in most Greek states, some one man seized power again. He was not a king, but was called a tyrant, which did not mean a cruel and selfish person as it does now. Soon again, in nearly every Greek state, the tyrants were overthrown, and some states chose once more to be governed by an aristocracy. Sparta chose thus, and was so governed as long as she remained a state. But some of the states declared that all the people should have a share in the government, and these were called democracies. The greatest of these was the state of Athens, 
whose people were perhaps the bravest and most beautiful, and certainly the cleverest in the whole of Greece. Athens was the most beautiful of all the Greek city-states. Every one of its people was educated, and every man had a vote and took a direct part in the government. The state was so small that all the men could meet together to choose their leader. It was a very vivid, eager life which the Athenians led, all keenly interested in politics, in philosophy, and in artistic things. In Athens, every Greek had time and opportunity to hear beautiful poetry, to see good plays acted in theaters open to the air. All took an interest in the building of temples and in the beautiful statues made to adorn them. Perhaps no nation in history has ever had so fine a people, so little poverty, and so much education. But it must be remembered that in Athens, as everywhere in Greece, there were many slaves who did the hardest work and so made possible the brighter lives of their masters. The Greek democracy was not like the modern democracy, which most people think is the best form of government. The Greeks did not consider the welfare of all the people, and in modern nations, where all are free, the problem of making all happy and comfortable is more difficult. The Spartans Sparta, the other great city-state in the south of Greece, was not a democracy, but remained an aristocracy. Its people were sterner and not so bright, perhaps, as the Athenians. They believed that every man should be a soldier, and every boy was taken from his mother when he was seven years old and brought up with other boys and taught how to fight. A Spartan boy would never cry whatever happened. He never thought about being warm and comfortable, but wore the same clothes summer and winter and cared only to be strong and brave. This was the ideal of the Spartans, the thing that they lived for. The women felt just the same as the men about it, and the mothers gave up their boys willingly for the sake of the state. The girls shared the games and races with the boys and grew up strong and brave women. A mother would much rather that her son should die in battle than give in. Return with your shield or upon it, she would say as her son went forth to battle. Besides the Greeks in the Balkan Peninsula and in the islands round about it, there were others who had gone forth across the sea and built cities on the coast west of the land now called Asia Minor. Since the Phoenicians had led the way, men knew much more about ships and how to sail the seas safely, and some of the more adventurous Greeks had sailed westward and set up towns in Sicily and in the south of Italy. Some of these were very rich and beautiful. The towns on the coast of Asia Minor, too, flourished and grew rich and were full of beautiful temples, for the Greeks during many hundreds of years worshipped many gods. It was a long time before their cleverest of men realized that there could be only one god, and then the people were very angry with them for saying so. Meanwhile, they built their temples to Apollo, the god of beauty, or to Diana, the goddess, whom they pictured as a huntress, young, brave, and noble, armed with a bow and arrow, and fluttering graceful garments short to the knees. There was one famous temple of Diana at Ephesus, one of the chief Greek towns in Asia Minor. 
We read in the Bible how in later days, St. Paul tried to teach the Ephesians about our Lord and how they clung to the worship of their goddess. But long before this, a great danger had threatened Ephesus and the other Greek settlements in Asia Minor, a danger which threatened Greece too, and which was so great that in the end the Greeks joined together to resist it, the Persians. For hundreds of years, the Greek towns in Asia Minor, like those at home in Greece and the colonies in Sicily and the south of Italy, were prosperous and free. But at length, they fell under the power of the Lydians, a people who possessed the land near. The Lydian king, Croesus had conquered most of Asia Minor and had demanded tribute of the Greek cities there. Croesus was wonderfully powerful and rich, but he fell in his turn before the Persian power, which had now spread westward over Babylonia and on to the very coast. When last of all the Greek cities there were attacked by this great barbaric power, they sent distressful messages to their kinsmen in Greece proper, and Athens determined to send them help. This decision of the Athenian people is one of the turning points in the world's history. If Athens had not fought against Persia and won, the Persian power might have spread from Asia to Europe, and the whole history of the world would have been changed. The Persians belonged to the Aryan people, but they were quite unlike the Aryan people in Europe. They were brave men, but they had no idea of freedom, which was the ideal of the Greeks. With the Persians, as with most Eastern people before and since, the will of the king was the supreme law. On his word depended life and death. The greatest nobles bowed before him, as though he had been a god. His court was full of beautiful things, and life seemed gay and brilliant. But there was a sense of uneasiness, for under a cruel or capricious king, no man could feel that even his life was safe. Stories told of the cruelty of one of these early kings. A nobleman had offended him, but the king pretended to forgive him and invited him to a feast. At the end of the meal, the king asked him what he thought of the food, and when he had been assured that it was excellent, the king called for a basket and showed it to his guest. In it were the head, hands, and feet of the nobleman's own child, and the king maliciously told him that the food that he had eaten was his child's body. The poor people were very poor and often unhappy. Women were hardly thought of as human beings, and children could be sold by their parents as slaves. The great king could lead great armies to battle, but the soldiers did not feel that they were fighting for their fatherlands. They won because of their great numbers, and because they were often fighting men very like themselves. But things turned out very differently when the Persians found themselves fighting with the Greeks, men who loved freedom and beauty and goodness, men who were full of pride in their people and respect for themselves. When Croesus was conquered by the Persian king, Cyrus, the Greek cities had been forced to give in to him too. Instead of the mere tribute that they had paid to Croesus, they were placed under Persian governors and treated as a conquered people. One town, Miletus, was allowed some sort of independence, but even there the people never felt really safe. 
The tyrant of Miletus had been carried off into honorable captivity with the Persian king, but had left his son-in-law, Aristagoras, to govern Miletus. The rulers of the other cities had become mere servants of Persia, and so the people determined to get rid of them and set up democratic governments. This they did. Aristagoras took the lead in the movement, gave up his power into the hands of the people, and when, in the year 500 BC, the Greek cities of Asia Minor announced that they would no longer live under Persian rule, it was Aristagoras who went over to Greece proper to ask help of the Greeks there for their kinsmen over the sea. He first went to Sparta and told them first of the sad state of the Greeks in Asia Minor and then of the riches of the Persians. It would be easy, he said, to conquer the Persians, barbarians who wore trousers and turbans, and then all the wealth of Persia would be theirs. But the Spartans refused to go. Then Aristagoras went on to Athens and again told his tale. The Athenians had but lately got rid of their tyrants. They were full of spirits and courage. Aristagoras reminded them that Miletus, the chief town suffering under the Persians, had been founded by people from Athens. The Athenians determined to give them help and sent 20 ships across the seas. The Lydian town of Sardis was accidentally burnt, and the Athenians, without giving further help, went back to their ships and so home. It was afterwards said that the new Persian king, Darius was so angry with the Athenians that he told one of his servants to remind him before every meal of the vengeance he was to take on them. But it was eleven years before Darius tried to revenge himself on the Athenians. Meanwhile, he turned his anger against Miletus and the other rebel cities. Miletus was taken and many of its men were killed. The others were sent with the women and children to a town far away on the river Tigris, and there had to live out their lives as exiles, far from home and country. The other rebellious cities were badly treated too, and then, after eleven years, Darius turned to take vengeance on the Athenians who had dared to defy him. He sent messengers to Greece asking the states to send him earth and water as a sign that they would consent to live under the yoke of the great king, as he called himself. The Battle of Marathon Some of the states did so, but Athens and Sparta proudly refused, and it is said that Sparta threw the Persian messengers into a pit and told them to find earth and water for themselves there. In the same year, 490 B.C., Darius prepared a great fleet of ships, filled them with soldiers, and sent them against the Athenians. Thousands and thousands of them, clothed in mail, poured from the ships into the plain of Marathon, which was twenty miles from Athens, and belonged to it. The Athenians sent for help to Sparta, but were told that no help could be sent until after a religious festival, which was still some days off. Spartans were never ready to join with the Athenians, for the two states were very jealous of each other. It is said that Phaeopides, the runner chosen to carry the message to Sparta, ran all the way in two days. The distance was 150 miles. When he came back, the Athenians stood on the mountains looking down upon the plain of Marathon, and the generals consulted together as to what should be done. 
Miltiades, one of the generals, advised an immediate attack, and the others gave up their power to him, and he arranged the battle according to his will. The Athenians, by his orders, plunged down from the mountains onto the Persian army in the plain. There were five times as many Persians as Greeks, but the shock was so great, and the Athenians fought so well, that the great awkward army of men, who had no knowledge of what freedom meant, were driven into the sea and back to their ships by the splendid Greek soldiers. The Greeks clung on to the Persian ships, meaning to set fire to them, but the Persians slashed savagely at them. The brother of Aeschylus, the great poet and writer of plays, who also fought at Marathon, had his hands cut off as he clung to a ship, and then he held on by his teeth. All but seven ships got away. The Persians sailed round to attack the harbor of Athens next morning, but the Greek soldiers, weary as they were from the battle, marched to meet them, and when the Persians saw the men who had just conquered them draw up again to face them, they gave up the attack and sailed away in disgust. So Athens saved Greece, and probably Europe, for Darius, if he had conquered Greece, might have spread his empire over the whole of Europe, and the ideas of freedom and art and beauty which the Greeks taught the world might have been lost. The Athenians built a great monument on the plain of Marathon to commemorate their victory, and they made the men of the little town of Plataea citizens of Athens. Plataea alone of the Greek states had helped the Athenians, and the thousand men whom they had sent were among the bravest and best fighters in the great battle. Miltiades, the victorious general, soon fell into disgrace. He asked the Athenians to fit out for him a fleet of ships, but begged them to allow him to keep as a secret the purpose for which he wanted them, promising to bring a great deal of money back. Then he sailed away to fight an enemy of his own who lived in Paros, an island near. He was not able to take the city and sailed back again to Athens without having done anything and without the money he had promised. The Athenians were very angry and Miltiades would have been put to death but for the memory of his courage and cleverness at Marathon. He was ordered to pay a fine of a large sum of money but died before he had time to do so. Some people have blamed the Athenians for having been so severe against a man who had done so much for them, and they have said that people governed as democracies are always changeable. Still, Miltiades had no right to use his country's money to take revenge on his own enemies. Yet the Athenians were perhaps a little changeable, for they showed it in their treatment of others. The two chief men in Athens after Marathon were Themistocles and Aristides. Themistocles was anxious that the Athenians should build a fleet and so be able to fight on sea as well as on land, while Aristides would have preferred a policy of peace. In the end, Themistocles got his way and Aristides was banished for the Athenians had a custom of sending troublesome politicians into exile so that they should not hamper the rulers at home. When the votes were being given as to whether Aristides should go or stay, one man at least was said to have voted against him because he was tired of hearing him called Aristides the Just. 
Aristides was not long away, for Persia soon threatened again, and Athens was glad to call back all the exiles who had been sent away after Marathon. The Persian Invasion of Greece Darius went back to Persia, determined to prepare a monster invasion of Greece, and so take his revenge, but he died before he had time to carry it out, and the work was left for his son Xerxes, who became king after him. Xerxes invaded Greece in the year 480 BC. He had endless resources at his disposal in men and money. Fearing the stormy sea round the cape of Mount Athos, which his fleet would have to pass on its way to the Greek peninsula, he ordered great gangs of men to cut a deep channel through it, so that two ships could easily sail through side by side. Then he ordered bridges of boats to be made across the Hellespont, and in the towns all along the way by which his army would have to go, he stored great quantities of food. He meant to avoid all risk. The first bridge broke because the ropes were not strong enough, and Xerxes ordered that the men who had built it should be beheaded. In his mad anger, he ordered, too, that the water of the Hellespont should be whipped with rods, receiving three hundred lashes for its defiance of the great king. Then the bridges were built again with stronger bonds, and in a fit of repentance or amiability, Xerxes poured wine from a golden bowl into the Hellespont, and then flung the cup and a golden bowl and a sword into the water, at sunrise of the day when he was at length ready to lead his great unwieldy army into Greece. The baggage with the camels and horses crossed on one bridge and the soldiers on the other. The first to cross were 10,000 Persians, the flower of the army, brave strong men accustomed to conquer. Behind them went the sacred horses and a chariot, empty in honor of the gods, and Xerxes himself drove after. Behind him straggled an enormous host, to the number of at least a million men, drawn from the peoples conquered by the Persians, and with no heart for the fight. So great was the crowd that the two bridges were filled with men and animals crossing over during the seven days and seven nights. It is said that one old man who had sent four sons to the army begged that the fifth might stay home. But Xerxes, instead of granting the favor, ordered that the boy should be killed and the pieces of his body placed on both sides of the bridge as a warning to others who might wish to hang back. Any who were slow to cross were freely lashed with whips. Xerxes could not realize that fear will never lead an army to victory. When the Greeks had seen the danger threatening from Persia, some of the states had been very anxious that the whole of Greece should join to resist it. A congress of the states was called to meet at the Isthmus of Corinth. The part of Greece south of the Isthmus was called the Peloponnesus, and here Sparta was the chief state, and had great power over the others. So nearly all the Peloponnesians naturally joined with Sparta, though Argos, a Peloponnesian town, held aloof, declaring she would rather be ruled by the Persians than help Sparta, whom she hated. In the end, very few of the states north of the Isthmus of Corinth joined in the defense. There was, of course, Athens, and the people of Phocis, and the faithful little town of Plataea and Thespia, another town near. But most of the northern Greeks held aloof, and some hastened to send earth and water to the great king. 
Themistocles had his fleet ready and was longing for a good sea fight. But as Sparta was the chief state in all Greece for the moment, the chief command was given to them both by land and sea. The Story of Thermopylae As ranges of mountains stretch across the north of Greece, the Greeks knew that the Persian army must come through mountain passes. They decided to make a stand at the Pass of Thermopylae, for if the Persians could get through that, there would be nothing to stop them until they reached the Isthmus of Corinth. A band of men were therefore set under the Spartan king Leonidas to guard the pass. More Spartans were to be sent later when a feast should be over. The Spartans would never let anything interfere with their sacred feasts. However, Leonidas knew that a few men could hold the pass easily against even the immense army of Xerxes, but unfortunately a treacherous Greek went to Xerxes and told him that to the west of the pass of Thermopylae was a path over a mountain which could not easily be defended. Leonidas had placed some Phocians there, but when they saw vast numbers of Persians advancing, they turned and fled. News came to Leonidas that the Persians were advancing, and he knew that there was no hope for those who should remain to guard the pass now that it would be attacked from both ends. So he told his army that those who wished might go away, but that he himself would stay and die fighting the enemy. 300 Spartan soldiers with their slaves and 700 others chose to stay, only about a thousand men in all. The Spartans were never afraid, not even of death, and they spent their time making elaborate toilette, combing out their thick hair, which they wore long, putting on dresses of bright scarlet, and polishing their weapons, so that they might face death with every sign of joy. As the Persians poured into the plain south of the pass, Leonidas told his men to fight their way out of the northern end, and there he and his little band died fighting desperately, killing far more Persians than their own numbers. The Persians were astounded at such courage, and angry too that so many of their own men were killed by a mere handful of Greeks. Two brothers of the great king himself were among the dead, Later, the Greeks built monuments on the spot where the heroes of Thermopylae had fought, and chief among them was a marble lion to honor the memory of Leonidas. In spite of the heroism of Leonidas and his Spartans, all Greece, as far as the Isthmus of Corinth, now lay open to the Persians, and as they marched south, the states gave in their allegiance. Plataea and Thespia were beaten down to the ground and the Athenians, seeing that there was no hope for them, took refuge on the fleet and were carried off to Salamis and other places of safety. One of the oracles had advised them to trust to a wooden wall, and this they thought meant their wooden boats. But a few men remained behind in the Acropolis, the hill center of the town, which could not be entered when the gates were shut except at one side. Across this side, the Athenians who remained placed great beams of wood to form a kind of wall, hoping thus to fulfill the words of the oracle, and take shelter behind the wooden wall. When the Persians advanced to attack them, they threw great stones down on their heads. But it was of no use, for the Persians broke through the barrier, killed the Greeks, and practically destroyed Athens. Thus the fate of the Greeks on land was sad enough, in spite of their great courage. 
but there was still the fleet in which Themistocles had put so much trust. The Persian fleet off the coast of Thermopylae had suffered much from storms, and in a fight they had with the Greeks, though the Greeks lost some ships, the Persians lost more. When the news came of the destruction of Athens, the Greek fleet was at Salamis. Themistocles could not persuade the leaders to sail forth and attack the Persians. One of the generals said to Themistocles, O oh, Themistocles, those who stand up in the games soon are whipped, referring to a rule in the Greek games. But Themistocles answered, Yes, but those who start late are not crowned. At length, Themistocles had recourse to a trick. He sent word to the Persians that the Greek fleet was very frightened and was going to sail away. The Persians then thought it would be best to attack the Greeks before they could escape, and one morning the Greek fleet found the whole Persian fleet drawn up to the east, ready to fight. The Greeks then showed that they could fight on sea as well as on land, in spite of their hesitation. They dashed in and broke the front line of the Persian ships, and drove the two back lines in confusion upon each other. On sea, as on land, the Persian forces were too awkward and unwieldy. There was really not room for so many ships. The battle became fast and furious. When a Persian ship was sunk, the men were drowned, for few of them could swim, while many Greeks, even from ships which were destroyed, saved themselves by swimming to the shore. Xerxes had one ally who was a woman, Queen Artemisia of Helicarnassus in Caria. The Greeks had promised a prize to whomsoever should capture her, but when a Greek ship was chasing her, she willfully sank a Persian ship which came in her way. The Greek captain seeing this and not knowing it was Artemisia's ship gave up the chase, thinking that she had deserted from the Persians. Xerxes sat on a great white marble throne on the shore and watched the battle. Even at the end, the Persians had twice as many ships as the Greeks, but so many men and ships had been destroyed that they had no longer any heart for the fight. Orders were given that the fleet should sail away, and Xerxes himself, sick at heart with disappointment, collected what remained of his vast army and crossed the Hellespont in haste, lest the Greek fleet should come to stop him. 300,000 Persians remained in Greece under the general Mardonius to make one more attempt in the next year at the conquest of this small country, which had thus defied the giant armies of the great king. Xerxes met with endless misfortunes on the journey home. The bridges across the Hellespont broke. The ice gave way on a frozen river as the army crossed it. Provisions ran short and disease broke out. Men and animals died in thousands. Mardonius spent the winter in Thessaly and in the spring started again towards Athens. Once more the Athenians withdrew to Salamis and their city was again ravaged by the enemy. The Athenians sent indignant messages to the Spartans, who had again failed to help them, because their religious festivals held them back. Meanwhile, they had built a strong wall across the Isthmus of Corinth. It is said that someone pointed out to them that the Athenians might in the end join the Persians against Sparta, and that their strong wall would be of little use if the Athenians with their magnificent fleet attacked them by sea. 
At last, the Spartans sent an army to join the Athenians, and Mardonius withdrew north to Boeotia, which was better country for his cavalry to fight in. Help from the other Greek states now poured in, and Mardonius, anxious to break up the Greek army, sent Masistios, the commander second to himself, to attack Megara. The Athenians detached themselves from the general army and went to their aid. Masistios was a handsome man and almost a giant in height. He wore a suit of golden mail and over it a tunic of crimson. His white horse was shot under him, and though his mail resisted all arrows for a time, he was at last shot through the eye and killed. The Athenians won the victory, and the body of Mesistios was carried in triumph along the lines of the Greek army that all might see it. Mardonius waited several days before he ventured to attack the Greeks, and then one day, when the Spartans were making a change in their position, he led his army against them alone. The Athenians were surrounded by the Greeks who were helping the Persians, and so the Spartans fought the famous Battle of Plataea practically alone against the Persians. The splendid Persian cavalry tried to break the solid mass of Spartan ranks, but failed. The heavily armed and mailed foot soldiers of Sparta broke down the hedge of shields, behind which the light-armed foot soldiers of the Persian army stood, and though it was a hard-fought battle, and the Persians were overwhelmingly greater in numbers than the Spartans, the splendid discipline of the Greeks won the day. Mardonius himself was killed, and the Persians fell back to their camp. Here another struggle took place, but the Athenians now came up to the help of the Spartans, and the Greek victory was complete. All the precious vessels of gold and silver, which Xerxes had been too hurried to take away, and so had left to his officers, now fell to the Greeks, and in some degree repaid them for the immense expenses of war. It is said that only 3,000 Persians were left alive out of the 300,000 of Mardonius's great army, while in all only 160 Greeks died on the field. On the afternoon of the day in which the Battle of Plataea was fought in the morning, the Greeks won another great victory over the Persians at Mysale in Asia Minor. Here it was the Athenians who played the chief part, going to the help of the Greek cities in Asia Minor, who were still under the hated rule of the great king. Persian admiral drew up his boats on the shore, but the Athenians followed, landed, and fought against them on land, and won a great victory. Not only were the Persians driven out of Greece proper, and Europe saved from an invasion by an eastern people, but the Greeks in Asia Minor were freed from their rule, and soon they were to be followed into their own strongholds, and the magnificence of the great king was to be a thing of the past. End of chapter 3